Our text this afternoon comes from the letter of James, the verses we've read, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, and we'll read those again now. So James 1, beginning at verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing so far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been on this earth for any great length of time, you have probably met a few people who have suffered immense trials in their life. Burdens that most of us could never comprehend. Perhaps initially you thought that they were normal, happy people. And then when you started to get to know them, you were just left speechless at the amount of suffering that they've experienced in this life. Isn't it so true that some of us are appointed to, go in, to undergo immense sufferings that most others could not comprehend at all? And yet others experience incomparably less. And yet none of us will escape the overwhelming sorrow and difficulty of this life. There is just too much suffering and brokenness to go around for any of us to miss it. All of us will experience the death of our parents if we haven't already. And if we aren't taken away ourselves first. And in the span of the 70 or 80 years that make up our lives... None of us will escape those painful, heartbreaking moments of suffering that are simply common to man. James opens his letter in a surprising way, and it's clearly intended to pack a punch. He gives a short greeting, and then without any preface or warning, he gets straight to the point. In verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy. When you experience, or when you fall rather, into various trials. That is astounding. All joy? How is any of this all joy? Who would consider these sufferings all joy? Now, James is not being trite here. He obviously recognizes the overwhelming nature of the suffering we experience. So, how? How does he justify what he says here? He gives us a two-part explanation. The first is in verse 3, that these painful trials test our faith and that makes us patient. And the second is in verse 4, that that steadfastness or patience produces in us a completeness and a maturity. So our goal for this afternoon will be to spend some time on each of those points and to seek to understand why James can say what he says that we should count these painful experiences as all joy. Now there isn't much in, in this phrase, various trials, that needs explaining, but it is worth noting that the word trial here in verse 2 is the same word as the word temptation in verse 12, and it's related to, this, to the word in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. So the concept in, in the Greek there is 
and, and most likely in James's thinking as well, is, is broader than merely trials that come from outside of us, but includes also the struggle inside of us and the temptations that accompany those trials. No painful experience ever comes at us in life without also the temptation from inside to sin against God in the midst of those trials. And James is certainly aware of that and is probably thinking of these kinds of trials in that light. So when he says in verse 1 that we should count these experiences as pure joy, he's not at all excluding those trials which test our faith and possibly are accompanied by temptations to sin, whether that sin be doubt or anger against God or even apostasy in denying God. He's probably thinking specifically of those kinds of trials. So he tells us to consider these painful trials as all joy, and he immediately gives us a reason why we should do so. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So we ought to consider or regard or think about these trials as all joy because of something that we know. What we know informs and shapes the way that we think and the way that we react. And it makes a huge difference in how we respond to our trials. That is why it is so important to read Christian books, to study Scripture continually, and to build up our knowledge Because what we know is going to determine how we think and how we feel and how we process what we experience. The things that go on in our lives are informed by what we know. So what does he mean when he says that the testing of our faith produces patience? Let's try to understand that. Well, first, we've seen that the word here for trial is is built, built into that concept is the notion of temptations as well. And what happens is that these trials come together with various temptations and they test or prove or determine what actually lives in our hearts. In Lord's Day 7, we confess that faith is a firm confidence in God's promises. And James is saying here that these trials test the strength of that confidence. How we respond to these challenges and and temptations demonstrates what we believe and what we are confident about. And to be sure, there is not one of us in this room who passes those tests with a perfect score. These overwhelmingly difficult trials, they so quickly reveal the strengths and the weaknesses in our faith. It becomes so painfully obvious where we have not believed when we thought we did or where we did not trust our Father as we thought we had. And yet, as disappointing as those moments are when we discover that our faith is not at all where it ought to have been, those same moments are also the Holy Spirit's tool to make God more precious to us than He has ever been before. And what is faith but that? To regard God as precious. For God to be more valuable than anything else. What is faith but the degree to which we cling to Christ? Our faith, our confidence, it's not something that's rooted in ourselves. And our trials prove that. They realize, we realize as we suffer that we have nothing in ourselves. 
Our faith is not our strength. It's the degree to which we cling to Christ. And nothing drives us to Christ, to cling to Christ, the way that trials do. And this is where we begin to see the immense joy in those trials. When we cling to Christ with our whole hearts, then we begin to see, sometimes for the first time, how much he has actually done for us. He is the one, after all, who suffered far more than any of us have ever suffered, being physically tortured and spiritually abandoned by the Father. He took on himself the one thing that would have been truly, totally unbearable. The one thing that would have broken us. And that is the Father's displeasure. And because he has gone there for us, we may enjoy the Father's love and his favor and his blessing even in the midst of, the, of life's most terrible trials. So the more that we are directed to him through our trials the more we begin to see the beauty and the glory of knowing our God and Father. And that glory is a pleasure which surpasses all the pleasures that this world has to offer. Because of Christ, our trials do not break us. They refine us. They prepare us for that coming glory. So even though our confidence may show many weaknesses when the weight of that pain overwhelms us, we do not look to ourselves For our strength, our strength is outside of us in Christ. In those moments, more than ever, we need to turn to Christ. And by God's grace, nothing causes us to cling to Christ and to hold on to Him more urgently and more powerfully than does the heartbreak and the pain and the loneliness and the weakness and the suffering that we experience during these moments or years of trial. Difficult though these trials are, they drive us with urgency to our Savior. He has suffered far more than ever we could have suffered, and He offers us joys that are far more precious than any we have ever known or even dreamed of. So by this constant exercise of turning to Christ in the midst of unbearable pain and finding our hope and finding our joy in Christ in the midst of trial, we begin to learn the patience that our text speaks of. What once used to be able to break us, somehow no longer does. Even though the suffering hasn't diminished at all, yet now it does not break our faith, but actually strengthens our faith and drives us closer to Christ. It compels us to Him because we know after we have suffered that He is our highest and deepest treasure. That pain, it does not distance us from God, but actually draws us near to Him. It does not make us forget our God, but reminds us that He is all we truly have and all we truly need. Maybe once we had a largely theoretical faith, but when we have suffered in faith, then we have the glory and the treasure and the joy of knowing God in a way that before those trials we never could have imagined. We have a faith that's been tested by fire and has grown in the midst of terrible heartache and pain. That is why we may count them as all joy. Not because they're happy experiences or because we feel happy experiencing them, but because they are the tool that our Heavenly Father uses to drive us 
to him, and he is our deepest and highest joy. So that's our first point from verse 3, that the testing of our faith produces patience or steadfastness. Verse 4 then takes us a step further, and a very important step further. Verse 4, it's actually in, in the form of a command. You see that in the New King James here. The first command was in verse 2, count it all joy, that's a command. And the next one is here in in verse 4, let patience have its perfect work. So God gives us these trials so that we may become patient and steadfast in hoping in Him and trusting in Him. And according to our text, that patience, it has a direction, it goes somewhere, it leads us somewhere and that's by God's design. Verse 4 he says, "Let patience have its perfect work that you may be complete and perfect lacking nothing." Perfection or you could also translate that maturity and completeness, they're called the work or the result of patience. In other words, learning that patience through trial, through steadfastness in trial, learning to be driven to Christ, to draw near to God in the midst of pain, that changes us. That steadfastness and patience, it changes who we are. And it makes us into mature and perfect and complete Christians. And isn't it so true that those who have experienced the most suffering and the most unimaginable trials also tend to be the ones whose faith most inspires us and encourages us and whose faith has a depth that the rest of us admire and respect and wish we could attain to. There is nothing like the endurance of faith under trial to produce Christian maturity. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher from a couple centuries ago, he once listed some of the effects that suffering has on us, some of the ways in which it makes us mature. He listed six qualities that suffering produces in us over time, and if you're taking notes, they're worth jotting down. First, he said, suffering makes us sympathetic and gracious, because when we have suffered much ourselves, we know how much it hurts. When we, are, when we see our fellow Christian struggling in the fires of testing, we do not come down on them heavily or rebuke them harshly when they fail because we know how hard it is, how much it hurts. We've already been there ourselves. Second, he said, suffering makes us cautious and humble because we know all too well how many times we failed when we suffered. The Christian who hasn't suffered much yet might be surprised at his brother or sister's weaknesses and failures and might even be tempted to judge that brother or sister in his heart. But when we have suffered ourselves, then we are much slower to condemn, much more cautious and humble, knowing we did not suffer perfectly either. Third, he said, suffering makes us thankful Because by suffering, we learn what matters most, and we take nothing for granted. The person who has lost loved ones treasures all the more the loved ones that he or she still has. And even more importantly, the Christian who has lost everything knows how precious and how valuable 
their God truly is. So the Christian who has struggled grumbles less, gives thanks more, and knows that we deserve nothing of what we have. And we can lose it all as quickly as we received it, as Job did when he lost his family, his home, his money, and even his health. Fourth, suffering makes us hopeful. Because when we have endured greater things in the past, then we can endure great things in the present. We may be confident that our Father will provide for us now. The first experience of suffering is overwhelming, and the new Christian can easily lose balance and feel lost in those waves of sorrow. But the ones who have endured much have an almost superhuman perspective. They know that the same God who carried them through yesterday and last year will carry them through today and tomorrow and next year. They know that this life is just simply full of storms. It's a constant death. This is not the first trial, and it's probably not the last. Even if they suffer for years, they begin to see that God does carry them through. That though they may not know how God will carry them through, they know that He has, and He will continue to do so. So they trust in Him, and they have a faith that trusts on a day-by-day basis always having hope. Fifth, Spurgeon said that suffering makes us unworldly or not overly attached to this world because the Christian who has suffered much knows that this is a life of toil and suffering and is not fooled by the spirit of our age which tells us otherwise, which says that suffering is somehow something that shouldn't be happening in our lives. The Christian who has suffered much doesn't cling to this world which is full of pain, but clings to Christ, our only relief from that pain. Finally, Spurgeon said, as a result of all of these other qualities, and there are certainly more, suffering makes us useful. The Christian who has suffered knows how to comfort others who are suffering, knows how to serve others in humility, knows how to teach others to be joyful and to be thankful knows how to point others to their hope. So the Christian who has suffered becomes useful. The Christian who has suffered is no longer afraid of suffering and no longer avoids it at all costs. And as a result, is able to serve in ways that are very useful and often difficult and painful. So the kingdom of Christ grows so often by means of Christians who are not afraid of pain because they've been there. Suffering is one of God's primary tools to make us useful in his service. These qualities and others are what our text refers to when it says that perseverance makes us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When our faith is refined by fire, the impurities and the immaturities, they are so quickly burned away, making us holier, purer, more complete. Through our suffering, our Heavenly Father gives us what we lacked in terms of faith and in terms of commitment to Him. He directs our eyes to Himself so that He becomes everything to us and we become devoted to Him. So let me conclude by offering some words of encouragement in light of our text, both to those who are suffering up till now and those who perhaps have not yet suffered very much in this life. To those who are suffering, let these two exhortations be a comfort to you 
since we know that our Father gives these sufferings to us with a purpose. Our Heavenly Father knows all our needs, and He has given us these trials for our joy and for our benefit. That is why it is so important that we know, that we know that these come from our Father's hand. Without that knowledge that God is with us and for us, our suffering would be unimaginable and unbearable. But when we know that even the worst things happened precisely because God decreed that they should happen for our joy and for our benefit, then we may begin to look to our Father instead of turning away from Him. Then we may do as James says and count them as all joy. Then we may begin to trust in God's sustaining grace instead of only looking for His delivering grace. Then we are directed to the only source of joy and our vision and our experience of that joy is made so much deeper and so much more complete. Nothing brings us into intimacy with God and dependence on Him more than those painful moments of suffering that He brings into our lives for that purpose. Then we begin to see the preciousness of Christ and all that He offers. We do not realize how we do not we often sorry do not realize that he is all that we need until we reach those moments when he is all that we have in those moments of trial then there is no distraction left our faith in Christ who is our greatest and our only treasure is kept front and center and that that brings a joy that the world only wishes it could have by focusing us on Christ Our trials focus us on our joy that we have in Christ. Our world has no way of processing these trials, and they will, make no mistake, they will undergo these same trials, but they have no way of dealing with it. They believe that trials are a distraction from the real purpose in life, and so they miserably waste those experiences of suffering. But Christians have the opportunity to use their suffering for God's glory and for our growth. And that is precisely what God has given this suffering for. While it is good and right to pray for delivering grace, God often gives us what we need more, his sustaining grace. It is a world of pain that we live in. And we will either spend our lives trying to avoid that pain, which we cannot, Or we will spend our lives glorifying God in the midst of pain, which is precisely what he gives it for. And for those who have suffered, perhaps so far, comparatively little in this life, take also this exhortation to heart from verses 2, 3, and 4. Our sufferings are not an obstacle to our joy, but a means to our joy. This doesn't mean we should seek out suffering. Even our text says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. But we should consider it then a joy when we encounter them. It may be that some of us have suffered little in our lives precisely for this reason that we avoid it, that we flee from suffering, that we're afraid to suffer. And if that's the case, we do well to take this lesson to heart. Suffering strengthens our faith, and it brings us closer to God like almost nothing else in this world can do. It is not an obstacle to your joy. It's a means to your joy. No, we do not need to seek it out, 
but we also do not need to flee from it. And finally, for all of us, whether we have suffered much or suffered little, let us be engaged in a serious devotional life so that now, already before we suffer, that Christ may be our highest and deepest joy so that we may be prepared and fearless when those sufferings come. George Muller, he was a Christian evangelist and a founder of many schools and orphanages a couple centuries ago. He is now famous for his serious devotional life. And he once wrote this, this quote, The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to make my soul happy in the Lord. What if that was our first great and primary business? If we made that our first great and primary business, to have our souls happy in the Lord every day, then we will not only be far more prepared when the trials come, but we will also be made fearless so that we may live our lives as God would have us live them and not flee from the trials that we face Whether we have suffered much or little, we know that we will suffer. So may it be that these moments of affliction may remind us that our deepest and our highest treasure is Christ, through whom we have access to the Father, and the love and the fellowship of God, which we enjoy through Him. May the pain that we experience in this life remind us that apart from Christ, we have nothing, so that we would cling to Him all the more exclusively, And be willing to lose everything for him. Because after all, he is all that we need. Amen. Let's respond by singing.